go. All right. So uh, another week, another episode of our podcast. Yeah. So we're on a roll. It looks like we have several guests lined up the next couple of weeks. And yeah. we want to take time today to welcome Matt Swanton, who is the creator of Boring Rails, which is a collection of Ruby on Rails content aimed at building more with less and Slotback Labs, which is a Canadian football league uh, stats and analytics tool uh, for daily fantasy sports. Um, Matt, in your day job, you are a lead product engineer, right? Yeah, uh, I'm, a, I'm a lead product engineer at SCP, which is where Courtney, you and I uh, met almost what, 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And so Matt also has a wonderful blog. Um, Matt is a great, I, I consider him a, a high quality content creator. Um, his blog touches on a lot of different um, soft skills for engineers as well as design um, and just as well as like Matt's kind of just thinking of how to build products. So um, that's kind of why we have you today on the show. We want to see what you're thinking um, in this current climate and kind of see how your career has developed. I think uh, one one angle we like to talk about on the show is how can we help young aspiring um, engineers, designers and product managers? So I think you have some really good stuff that you can share today about that angle as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's really an interesting time just in in terms of new folks entering the industry. I think I heard or read somewhere recently that at least for software developers, um, it's grown by, you know, it's basically doubled every, uh, you know, two years or something like that. So uh, people that are in the field now, like half of the people were not here uh, two years ago. So everybody is kind of reliving that same like year zero to uh, five, uh, you know, journey that that you and I were sort of uh, on together, Courtney, and and now we're kind of past that and and uh, sort of looking back and reflecting on, uh, you know, now now we've yeah. we've made it through. What uh, what 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 how, might we share with uh, newer people? How can we kind of strip down the pitfalls that we, you know, the the things that we learned through failure or like through just kind of having to slog through it? I think that's the one thing that really touched me about boring rails is because I think ten years ago. When you were building Rails projects, I remember you lamenting like, "Man, this has to be easier." Um, and a lot of the tools and, and content that you have there today, like, gets rid of the cruft and focuses on like, "This is what you need to get started with Rails and like Redis or um, even just using." I know you're um, actually involved with like Tailwind, um, like setting up a design system to help you build great products. Get all this technical stuff out of my way and let me actually build something. And Dan, this this is kind of where you're at too, right? Get out of my way. Let me build the thing. Oh yeah, I think that's kind of the that's where I'm curious about talking to people that kind of follow the same philosophy of you know we're at the end of the day the most impactful managers, designers, engineers are those that get essentially the freedom to build. Like at the end of the day, like if you're not spending most of the stuff in meetings and you just get to build stuff, that's that's what I'm after. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, what what was the I guess backstory on boring rails? Um, Again, I just I kind of want to start with that because I think that that's been like your main project here recently, side project. Yeah. Um, well, I think it all it all kind of starts with something I I sort of made an intentional decision on in back in, in 2019, which was I kind of looked and, and stepped back and said, Hey, uh, I've been building little side projects and and one off things just because I like I like making. I like like Den said, I like just building stuff. And I kind of looked back and I said, Well, I. I've done all these these small little things, and I've had some you know minor successes and a lot of uh, things that fizzled out and didn't go anywhere. And uh, I, I tried to think about like I, I felt I felt a little bit uh, sad in a way that I didn't really have more to show from it. Uh, so I kind of tried to reframe things for myself in terms of uh, like building assets instead of building side projects. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be something that makes money, but I was more thinking about something where I could put in some time and then it could either you know, grow on its own or uh, just something that would have kind of lasting power. So uh, you know, in the past, I would, I would say like, oh, I'm really excited about this technology. I'll you know, make a little app in it, but I never, I never took it all the way to uh, you know, let's get customers and let's charge money for this or let's turn it into a business. So then at the end of it, you're kind of, obviously you have the lessons you learned and, and uh, you can use that in, in the future, but I didn't really have anything at the end that was like, oh, well, I invested time in this and now I have, you know, something something for it. I so actually, 
And on your hey, site, you have so many examples of this, right? Like your content has been generated through those experiments and, and little things you built like along the way. I love, I actually love going back in time a little bit and looking at some of those projects you built. I'm, I remember one that really stuck out to me was the morale app. You built an, an application that basically would kind of monitor the morale of a, t- of a team, like inside your, your yeah. company. And like that to me at the time was pretty, pretty cool. Like as a manager, I could see that being useful. Um, but again, you, like you said, it's like, well, I'd have to go find customers and kind of, yeah. Yeah. And I think each time I kind of take an at bat with this, I sort of, um, I, I really like learning something new. And so like in that project, a lot of it was, uh, learning more about design, learning more about, you know, h- how do you get customers? How do you do marketing for this, this type of thing? And it, technically it wasn't very interesting. I mean, the the bulk of the app was that every day it sends you an email with three links and you click on a link and it, you know, records mm-hmm. yellow, red, or green for your day and puts a little smiley face on there. Um, but that wasn't the interesting part. The interesting part was like, okay, what's the experience of doing this? How can I make this low friction? Uh, and this was kind of before sort of Slack had taken over and there was Slack bots and things like that. Uh, and then from there it was how do I how do I get people on my team to use this? How do I get other teams at our company to use this? How do I get other companies outside of uh, you know SCP to use this? And uh, yeah, I think it was definitely a good learning experience. Um, in some ways, it helped me figure out things that I wasn't good at or that I didn't want to do, which was uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of the uh, you know I think I after that project I said like I never want to be a product manager like uh, I just I, I don't like. That's I don't like the the uh, like administration and you know roadmap management and uh, you know emailing customers and and all that. Dan, I'm I'm curious to hear your uh, you know rebuke to that because you went from being a developer to yeah. So but, no, it's a, it's a very good point. I think the I, I it I, the sentiment is very much the same. Like to me, my passion is more about kind of building things, right? Like I, when I talk about what is my career goal in 10 years, right? And we, we talk about 10 years as this like ephemeral timeline, but like I want to be a CTO, right? Because I want to be deeply in the technical stack. I want to, I want to build stuff, right? Things like, um, you know, oh, let's uh, analyze kind of the revenue projections. Like, yes, you have to do it for a product, but if I have to choose, I would always lean towards building. But to that extent, actually, Matt, I'm curious um, and, trying to take a step back you mentioned time for side projects that you, you kind of started these um how how do you find that time when say you have a full-time job because i think one of the conversation points that i have with my mentees is sometimes they ask the same thing where i'm coding all day at my day job yeah like, am i expected to come home and then code more on my own projects how do you balance that yeah i mean i think early on i actually am sort of a bad example and that i i didn't I didn't really have a good um, balance for that, and I think early on, I even, I even, you know, kind of distinctly remember like looking at other coworkers and like, oh, like they're not doing, they're not doing anything extra. Like this is this is wrong. This is bad. And obviously, as you get older and and you know start thinking a little bit more outside yourself and realize that other people have other other things going on and other things pulling for your for your time, uh, you certainly uh, can kind of look back and cringe a little bit at at, uh, <laughs> at past you, but. I don't know. I, I've always had success when I can kind of uh, find some overlap in what I'm doing. So uh, right now, for me, at my at my day job, I've been able to work on a Rails app for the past two years. So that kind of dovetails, and there's some overlap there where I can I can uh, you know work on learning a new technique, apply it in my day job, and then maybe you know on the weekend I'm I'm summarizing that into a blog post and kind of generalizing it. Uh, and that's been hard for me, especially in in my world. I, like I work, you know, doing custom software consulting for, uh, you know, medium uh, sized companies. So a lot of times I don't have necessarily control over the tech stack we're using or what's right for the business. It's more about solving, you know, solving problems for the business instead of, well, I want to go learn, you know, this new JavaScript framework or uh, or that. And I think you can see that some in, in some of my writing. Like for a yeah. while, I was doing a lot of Android work. And so I, you know, in, in my side projects then were, hey, I'm going to write about uh, Android. And I was really big into doing test-driven developments. And there was kind of a, a gap in, in, you know, mobile applications and test-driven development didn't really kind of go together. You had kind of this spirit of 
of you know somebody in their garage trying to make a, a million dollar app, and then you have you know compare that to TDD uh, like TDD and yeah yeah and and you know the the software as a craft movement and and that sort of thing. So I, I mean, I, I kind of I kind of started I started something down that path and it kind of fizzled out and you know then I was uh, at work moving on to something else and it just becomes it, I, I definitely then emphasize with uh, your 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 mentees and that it, it's hard to find time especially if like I was often in the situation where there would be like a Ruby meetup in town but I wasn't working on a Ruby project at work anymore so it, it's it's sort of hard to justify uh, and kind of know should I do something that I think is going to help me get better at my job? Should I do something that I'm more interested in? And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough that when those things overlap, I, I try to take advantage. I, I love that you, you touch on, though, here, something that, you know, younger engineers can kind of take away, which is like the current things that you're working on can are interesting and can become content or can become thought experiments for you to talk about. And like ex externalizing that sometimes helps you better understand the project. But it also shows like your breadth of knowledge. I mean, like you said, you look back through your blog and yeah, I can see like an evolution of what you what your tech stack was and like what you were thinking about. And that says right. so much about like your work history and how you approach problems. I think that's super valuable if anybody was to come and say, hey, we want to hire Matt Swanson. What was his history? It's all there. Right. And it's all right. Um, kind of cemented. And it'd be really hard 10 years from now, 10 years away to talk about like that old Android project. Right. Like. Yeah, you yeah, did for it. sure. You don't remember the, the the little things you were going through. So there's like an evolution shown there. But I also think you brought up another point, which we all feel as professionals, which is um, how much hustling should I be doing outside of my job um, to get better? And I think that there's this um, nuanced balance of like, you got to find something enjoyable outside of work to continually drive you. Like you, you need to be keenly interested in maybe a very specific tech or like getting a certain thing done. I mean, for me, it's just understanding design. Um, and, and for you, it sounds like it's like like focusing on like this Rails problem and like helping build projects. But um, kind of where I'm going with this is I've felt that pressure where it's like, should I be doing so much outside of work or, or do I need to just kind of take work for work? And, and I do it just to be basically free me up to do all the other things I'm interested in outside of tech. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's oh. This is I, I like 100 percent that. And I feel like it's there's tremendous value in uh, what uh, I would refer to as coding for fun, right? This is where, uh, you know, back in the days when I was first starting at Microsoft, I worked with Clint Ruckus, Clint that we interviewed, uh, Brian Peake, Ben Fernandez, and they had this project on Channel 9 called Coding for Fun, where the, literally the projects they would build were like, you know, uh, a twi Twitter bot for World of Warcraft, right? Or like boxing robots, where you can kind of overlap, and this is what Matt was alluding to, like how can you find a job that overlaps with that ability to learn and build uh, so that you're not necessarily separating the two, but seeing that as I'm just doing fun stuff all the time or like stuff that allows me to grow even at my job. Yeah, I think it's uh, obviously great if, if, you can, if you can have some overlap and uh... I don't know. There, it it's really is just such a complicated subject. I know there's, uh, a, you know, in the industry, there's a whole crowd of people who will say that you know the 40-hour week is, is is sacred, and uh, but then there's other people that also would say that, and then say, you know, do as I do as I say, not as I do. You know, it's it's easy to, uh, you know, espouse, uh, you know, this this low uh, low stress work environment when to get to that position, you actually had to work 80-hour weeks. Uh, to to then you know build up either reputation or your 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 capital. So yeah, I don't have a I don't have a great answer, and it's something <laughs> yeah. I, it's something that I think is 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 really not clear cut. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you're you're kind of getting to a very interesting point where when folks that get into the more senior positions, it's very easy to say you know oh balance your time, find ways to kind of relax and. Um, so that's great, but at the same time, a lot of those folks got to those senior positions because they, you know, spend a significant amount of time, say, working after work on their side projects. They had the luxury of the fact that they could sit down and code on some awesome stuff that they demonstrated. Then they were not just kind of, you know, turning their computer off. So it's 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 definitely tricky. I, I don't know if there is a single recipe, and I don't know, like, when people ask, like, well, should I balance my work week? You probably should. But at the same time, how do you also balance with the fact that you do need to grow your skills? You do need to 
learn new things and kind of constantly improve yourself. It's, I, I don't think I ever found the answer. Uh, Matt, I'm curious, like when you were early on in your career, I, I know from, I was kind of familiar with you being really involved in like the Indie Startup Lab, um, helping around the Indianapolis area, like with different technology projects and going and, and going out and meeting people. Um, those are great um, activities, but when it comes back around to just like getting, basically setting up your learning list, right? Like, did you, did you have like a kind of a path in mind, you know, as a, as a software engineer, where you wanted to go and what, what skills you were looking to acquire to kind of level up, right? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. And, and it's hard to think back to, you know, this is years and years ago and, and it's easy to, to, you know, backfill a, a narrative of what I was doing, but I, I've always been interested uh, in, in, Things like uh, it's funny that Den mentioned the you know the coding for fun. I definitely remember reading uh, reading that blog uh, back in the day. And and I mean when I think about the stuff that I work on, I, it's I don't think I've ever been one to strictly say like I want to learn this tool, so I'm going to like do a bunch of tutorials about it. It's always been sort of project based uh, for me. And uh, you know sometimes those projects were you know. Uh, less personally interesting. I remember, like, I, I built a, a Stack Overflow, you know, clone wants to learn how to use, uh, you know, a different database or something. And obviously, like, there's nothing there uh, that that's r too interesting. It's it's you know, I was really treating it more like a, a, a to-do list app or something. Uh, but then there's been other times when, uh, you know, I've, I've built things, you know, fantasy football tools for. Uh, my own use, or uh, you know, the morale app was a uh, was a tool for us to use at work, and uh, now some of the stuff I'm doing uh, with Boring Rails is is more about you know producing content and and things that are more interesting to me. Yeah, there's there's definitely one of those areas where it's uh, when I think about coding for fun, I also think of like working on the most insignificant, seemingly insignificant things just to learn things. So just like you, like I, I don't think I've ever set out to say, you know, oh, you know what? I'm gonna learn Python and just be good at Python. Like my hobby yeah. project in the past couple of days and my, like, my wife, over, right? Like yeah, like my, my wife has been laughing at me, but I have this little light. Uh, it, it's it's a called a blink light. And essentially it's an LED that can react to, you know, if you have Slack or Microsoft Teams and you set your status, it kind of changes the light. So I was like, you know what? I'll figure out how to sniff the USB traffic and see how I can set the light myself from Python. Like yeah. it's totally useless. It's it's not something that I can start a startup from. It's not it's not a business, but it's fun. And it's fun to learn because like okay, now I know how to, you know, look at the USB traffic. And I found a open source contributor on GitHub, uh, Eric O'Shaughnessy, who, you know, I had some questions, they like, just email me and I'll tell you exactly how I found my solution to this. It, it's fantastic because it's it has no point whatsoever other than like this looks fun and i'm curious how to do this yeah but then if you if you really think about it it's like oh well you're getting experience uh you know just playing around with with iot and what are the, some of the patterns there and you've 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 you know a, a dirty word but you've you've networked with this this person right. who in the future <laughs> you you may need to uh you know reach out and, and do something with so yeah and i think i think people are drawn more to projects Anyways, uh, if you know things, things that I see on Twitter, it's always uh, you know, hey, I'm making this thing. Here's some screenshots of it. I think that always gets people's attention more than I wrote a tutorial on this, you know, right. this module or on on this version of this library. Oh yes, there's so much of that where it's like it's so much when you go to sites like Hacker News. That, I think that's why I love the fact that Hacker News does some curation where. You know, if I have a tutorial on, you know, how to use Flask in 10 steps, like, I don't know, versus somebody saying, like, I figured out how to use Flask to control my Pokemon Go app. And I was like, whoa, okay, I want to read that. That's like, sure. I just don't yeah. really control their Pokemon Go app. And then I don't really care what the tech stack is. You know right. what I'm saying? Like, I, I think the older I've gotten, the more I've, I've gotten just like, totally, I don't really care what the stack is. <laughs> Does it work? And like, it, what is how how is it making like a delightful product? Um, oh yeah. How do we yeah. how do we get to that spot that sweet spot of like the tech team is admired in in technical decisions? You know, like getting slowed down in that that slog of choosing what tools to use. And Matt, this is this is your area, man. This is like your lead product engineer. So how do you 
how do you do that with your team today? Like make clear decisions, move the product forward and make it a good product. And we're not talking about code, you know, TDD and all that, that good stuff. Like code quality is really important, but also at the end of the day, you have to be delivering value. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think it's so interesting to think about the context too. I mean, in my day job, like we're working in kind of like high complexity, high cost of failure business domains. So uh, for me, when I'm picking tools, I almost need the tools to be like a given that I can deliver with something. Uh, so that that leads me to pick things that I think I'm more familiar with, that I think a, you know a, a broader range of developers are more familiar with, that tends to be things that are a little bit older. Uh, you know, they've sort of stood the test of time and you know, you've sure. been able to, yeah, you've been able to use time as a filter, right? If, if something's been around for, for 10 years, uh, you know, it's likely to still be around for 10 years. If something has been around for, for three months, then, uh, you know, it, it's it's just has less, uh, it's been exposed to less, uh, you know, stressors and may may not be there when, when you know, you come and try to revisit this in, in six months. So I think there's a good mental model for this. I, I wouldn't say that I explicitly use it, but I sort of, I like the idea of like the, the innovation token, which is sort of, you have, you have a fixed amount of, of uh, tokens that you can use for for fancy new technology. So uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a project and you want to spend your your currency on a new database, okay. But then everything else needs to be kind of tried and true uh, tools. What criteria do you apply to that new technology? Say you're you know a new database to actually see if it works with the scenario. Because I feel like oftentimes talking to uh, folks in the engineering field, there is this tendency of like, hey, there's a new shiny thing. Let's just throw all our resources into it. Let's go with it. And then, you know, halfway through the project, you realize like, oh, this actually doesn't scale as well as it should. What's your process of assessing whether it's even a good decision to go with that innovation token? Yeah, and I think it really also just depends on context too. So I can share some of my context, and that's going to be different than, uh, you know, Dan, where you work, and Courtney, where you work, and where somebody listening to this is working. But like in my context of, I, I also have the additional lens of, uh, you know, consulting and, and things like that, where we also need to think about uh, after after we've, uh, you know, left the project, okay. how easy is this going to be for, you know, our customers to maintain? What what skills do they have internally? What uh, if they don't have anybody? Like how hard is it to hire somebody to do this, right? And if you're using something bleeding edge. Uh, it may you may actually be able to hire people because it is you know new shiny and people want to work on it, but you know maybe the cost is higher and and uh, you know uh, somebody who who is using all the latest uh, uh, shiny tools may uh, may be someone who's more likely to uh, be drawn to that and want to switch around and and if this is you're looking for someone to maintain a system for long term, like you kind of want something that's a little you know a little more boring and so like layer that on with the actual context of a project, and and now you can suddenly see how this is this is uh, sort of becoming an overwhelming uh, list of factors, and uh, it becomes more of a an art than a science. But yeah, figuring out what, what do I actually have this problem? Do I have a problem this is solving, or is this uh, you know something that I that I hope? I mean, you said you, you mentioned scale. Scale is obviously important, but there's a huge uh, spectrum of scale. The project I'm working on right now is never going to have you know. 100, uh, 100 users, let alone 100,000 users. It's it's an internal like line of business tool. So uh, you have to you have to really weigh all of that against against these tools and see what are they actually what are they actually giving you. Yeah, I, I love the idea of there's you know the the memes floating around around the kind of the overcomplicating of the process when you know oh I have an independent bookstore that I need to have a site for like let's throw Kubernetes on it and like all this stuff yeah. like. You, it literally can be a static site that can be two HTML pages. That's it. Like yeah, you need yeah. nothing else. Yeah, and it, it's really. I mean, I understand, and I think it's a really a complicated reason as to like how this happens in the industry, right? So if you think about it, the large there's just these these larger tech companies just have they have so much influence in the market. There's so much uh, money, prestige, recognition, uh, and a lot of this, a lot of the problems they have are just completely different than what 
you know, the, I don't even know what the breakdown would be, but let's say the, 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 you know, the other 90% of the industry, right? So, uh, and, and I, I'm interested in, in both of your takes on this, since I think you both are, uh, have worked at, at, you know, these bigger, bigger firms in the past. And like, if you think about it, there's kind of two angles that this, this stuff comes from, I think there's, you know, uh, when you get to a certain scale, you have certain problems that are not solved by existing tools. You also have a huge bandwidth for developing solutions that will fit combined with, you know, any incremental uh, benefit you can get can have huge leverage in terms of, you know, profitability and, and scale. So that's where all, a lot of the R&D is happening. And then you turn it around, like which organizations also have money to spend on, you know, developer advocacy and sponsoring conferences and, and, and doing all this. And, then you flip it the other side. You've got all these new people entering the industry. They see, uh, you know, the the uh, the lure of these companies. And I'm not I'm not saying it's like predatory or anything. It's like these are the apps everyone is using, right? Like if you're yeah, a new developer, you're like, sense. wow, it would be awesome to work at Twitter. Like I use Twitter all the time. Like you know, you know, uh, Gmail is my favorite app. That's that's so cool. Uh, and you know, these companies are also uh, are sort of the winners in the market. They can pay top salaries. So it just it leads to this kind of cycle where people that are new are interested in learning these technologies because they're important to have on your resume to get hired at these companies that they're aspiring to work for. And everybody else is, I think, just kind of left in this weird middle ground where, like, you know, Dan, you're saying, like, yeah, uh, why does why does a, a small uh, a small business need like a Kubernetes cluster? And it's like, well, they don't. But the people that are working on it are like, well, one day I dream of working at, you know, Microsoft doing this, and Microsoft has legitimate reasons for needing this. You know, uh, it just it creates this really weird dynamic that I think is, it's not good. Uh, like, but I understand like, how it happens. Like the tech stacks in some instances, and we're not we're not, we're talking in generalizations here, but in some instances they're chosen because of the personalities on the team. Um, yeah, and and like what their goals are aspirational. Person, like goals. Right. And to, to that extent, I think there's another factor where once you become so kind of entrenched in working with certain tools, like, you know, when, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But sometimes you got to realize that, you know, to yeah. put a nail in the wall, you don't need a freaking bulldozer. Like, you just need a little hammer. Right. And but I feel like when folks get so deep into this technology stack say like you know matt you're talking about folks in kind of the uh developer advocacy space the engineers when you work you know day in day out would say like a uh, docker for example well of course everything is going to look like something that you can put you know use docker for and uh you know because why not like it's easy it's scalable it works really well it's a good yeah. tool uh but there's very little visibility outside of that stack to say you know what, maybe you don't need Docker for this. Maybe you need to use GitHub pages or something like that. Um, but I feel like the, the factor can also be the fact that it's just folks do it all the time. They're comfortable with it. They, to them, this is, oh, it doesn't seem complicated. You know, I've been working with Docker for 10 years or however long Docker existed, and I can just throw together a Docker file, put some commands on, bam, it works. But when you yeah. put it to somebody that's new in the industry and they have no experience with Docker, no experience with containers, and they look at it and say, like, I have no idea what this does. Like, why? Like, what's a sidecar? Like, wh wh why do I need this? Why? Like, mm -hmm. and, and so the last couple of years, I've been approached by people that are asking, how do I get into software development? You know, they, there's people that are hitting um, kind of ceilings on either their industry or they see that there's a, a world of opportunity becoming a software developer, and they say, Courtney, like. Tell me, like, what do I do to get started? What technologies do I need to do? What boot camps do I go to? What, you know, what, where do I go to get this knowledge? And what technologies, right? Like I said, what technologies yeah. do I have to learn? And I think there's been a couple of times here recently where I've just pointed at Matt your way because it's like, go look at what Matt's doing with Boring Rails and look at the text he's referencing. Like, if you learn these, you would be able to build a pretty simple web app. And I'm not talking, I'm talking like you could get started doing that, but then as complexity grows, you can figure out how to use these technologies to also build even larger apps, right? Scale up. Um, and Matt, so I think you're in that world of like, let's get some sane defaults here, right? <laughs> like, give me, well, give yeah, me and, and, to start and, with. Like, where in the hell do I start as a junior? Yeah, to be clear, like even just saying sane defaults, like you have to bring context into it. 
the same you know a same default for for den if he's starting up a project with uh, 25 engineers is not so sane for me with two engineers you mm -hmm. know and and that's why i think it's it's so tough uh, to navigate some of this because it really just depends so much and i think as much as hate people hate hearing that right yeah i mean there's there's just a lot of challenges right i mean like and i i i battle with this internally all the time is that like i think i think uh like writing is better when you don't sort of couch things with so many caveats i think being more clear and direct like makes for like actual better like writing regardless of the subject right but then like is this helping contribute to the problem of losing losing context and subtlety and nuance and you know uh i, I can say that uh yeah, i can also say that i think sort of this like identity based technology approach like is probably overall harmful to to the industry but at the same time like Am I participating in it by saying that like, oh yeah, like do things in, you know, in Rails yeah, and uh, everything will be fine. Like I have the answer, and uh, you know, it, it's just really just a a, a really messy, interesting uh, topic to to unravel in like the age of, you know, content creators and influencers, and you can see that seeping into the, the technology uh, market. I mean, you have you have folks on on YouTube. I don't know if you guys watching these videos. There's there's people that work at the like. You know, I'm an ex Facebook employee, and I'm making YouTube videos telling you how you can get a you know a half a million dollar a year job. And then this is what people that are new to the industry are finding. This is kind of the dream that's being sold by by boot camps, and I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. It's just uh, it, it feels closer to like uh, winning the lottery, right? To, to get one of these jobs than than the reality. There's an entire like huge swath of, of people. I think Patrick McKenzie was recently tweeting about this of like, you'd be surprised how many like small, like $10 million a year software companies there are. It, it's I mean, like, you know, you, th thousands of times more. Like you, you, you talk about Rails, right? Like yeah. Basecamp. Yeah. Like Basecamp is one example, like DHH, the, 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 the guy that invented Rails, like look at Basecamp, right? It's like, it's a small business, but it produces a significant amount of revenue. Yeah, for sure. Or, and there's there's you know, just Matt, where like, you work, you know, you're working at yeah. a, a software shop. I mean, it's it's a large software company that helps clients that don't have in-house sometimes or you're augmenting their in-house. Right. Yeah. And and I wouldn't even say it's large. Right. Like SCP now is we have 150 people like that's small compared to, True. you know, the industry. And if you think about if if every every not even major, every just, you know, mid-sized city in the country has got five to 10, you know, software agencies that are doing this, like there's just a huge number of, of uh, jobs. There's a huge number of uh, applications, businesses that are using software that, that just don't fit into uh, these categories that a lot of times I think are overrepresented on, on the internet. Oh yeah. And you know, everybody paints it. And I think this, this is part of kind of the Silicon Valley culture where like everything needs to be a unicorn. Everything needs to be the billion dollar company. And if you reach a billion, you need to be a $10 billion company. Like it mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Like if you are yeah. a $1 million a year company, you're doing great. <laughs> like it's okay to say where we are, it's good. Our growth is sustainable. We don't need to get that kind of the exponential growth curve where it's like every year we get 50 million more users. The next year, we're going to get 300 yeah. million. Like, and I think I think like having leverage is what feels good to me too. I mean, I've worked on projects where we've had you know a team of you know three to five people, and we've built apps that I think are comparable to what you know a company with uh, you know 200 developers are making. And uh, you know, I'm not going to say that it's completely equivalent, but uh, you know, is it is it the 80 20 there of is this uh, close enough with, you know, they have a hundred times uh, the the budget and staff spent on it. Is this app a hundred times better? Uh, I don't it, I don't think it usually is. It's so interesting to me, Matt, because you know, working at SCP, I knew kind of what the team sizes were, and I haven't seen a shift really in all of my jobs for the teams I'm directly working with. Like we're still, <laughs> I'm still working with you know, two to three engineers, maybe one, or maybe if it's a great project, I'm working with two PMs at a time. I mean, the team sizes haven't scaled much in my actual like tactical work. It's funny because it's, you know, we're working on like pretty big feature sets, but in these big companies, you would think, you know, working at Microsoft, we have these massive teams that said, yes, we have massive teams, but the teams are working on, still working on, they're still getting 
kind of stretched thin, right? And you yeah. still just have you have two or three guys just kind of banging away on like Microsoft documentation, right? Like yeah. it's still it's just a web site. It's a web app. And so I think, yeah, there's like also this outside image of like, oh, they have so many people thrown at it. And it's like, well, not really. And I'm sure like GitHub's the same way, right? Working on their products, it's like they might have people working on certain features, but it's still two or three people. But but it's also interesting tangentially to that is the fact that when we, you know, from the outside, it seems like, oh, it's just a website, right? Like it's a web app. What's what's so hard about building a web app that shows you some static HTML? But in reality, that complexity is so abstracted out. So when folks start kind of thinking through, you know, why do you need 10 engineers to build that? Well, let me explain to you the architecture and all that goes in it and all the scalability and all this, like somebody and, needs to manage and all data. those decisions that were made like five years ago when it launched. Yeah. Now that, right. that technology is obscure and nobody knows what the hell is going on. <laughs> well, if, and then there's there's like Conway's law, which is that, you know, the shape of the software sort of mirrors the shape of the organization too. And and it's hard to say which is, is causal and which is the effect, right? Of, of our teams and features broken down into, you know, services and divisions like this because we have all the people or did they break out this way because that's naturally how the software wants to go and i think it's usually uh, you know a mix of both so so the thing that i think is is interesting and i'd be curious to get your take on we've been talking a lot about the development side but on the design side i i kind of have this this take that i think design systems are kind of falling into this same trap that we talked about and uh i think to me, I don't think I've seen this articulated much anywhere, but like design systems seem almost like uh, you know an open source library to me. And from the development side, I think it would be sort of uh, it would be surprising if I said on my project, like I'm going to write my own like database ORM. Uh, but I, I <laughs> right. get the sense I get the sense, uh, and and maybe this is my bubble or. Or uh, you know my own bias here, but I get the sense that like the design community is sort of moving in a way where every company, every product, every team is sort of saying like we need a we need a design system. And when I look at this analogy, I'm like, oh well, that seems that seems strange. Like certainly there's there's a need for uh, you know design systems in the same way there's a need for databases, and there are companies where it makes sense to build frameworks and build your own your own tooling. Uh, so certainly I wouldn't say that you know. It's it's absurd for Microsoft to have a design system. I think it's the opposite. Like they have, uh, you know, many product lines, and they're looking for consistency across that. But I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this because I see a lot of a lot of uh, movement in the in the direction of like, oh yeah, this is this is a core thing. This is a best practice. This is something that uh, you know your your small uh, your small team needs to be doing. If you're not doing design systems, you're falling behind. And I just worry that uh, it's kind of falling into the the trap we've talked about of uh, applying the wrong scale or the wrong context. Yes, absolutely. Um, and again, back to your original comment, it depends. So, you know, within Microsoft, there is definitely this trend that, you know, there's the Fluent UI system. Um, that is actually the product of a central team at Microsoft. So you have a central team that's kind of dictating Here's like the direction and the visual design language we'd like to use people across Microsoft, thousands of designers across Microsoft. But when it, the rubber meets the road, you know, I'm working on a web app that we have our own, our own design system based on like Bulma CSS library, right? Which is open source mm -hmm. and is a, something that people contribute to on GitHub. So, you know, uh, it gets to this place where, we want to create consistent products and we want to also empower developers to more quickly spin up projects. I think there was a time in the, in the past where it was painful to work on CSS, right? And it was, yeah. painful, it was painful to work with, you know, you didn't know what the designer was going to throw over the fence next. And you had to basically talk through every single permutation of the interface. And the engineers were thinking about it more from a system systems approach, I think more so than designers, right? Um, a lot of times designers would create bespoke designs and um, then you'd get into this world of everything's a one-off. Um, and the, the engineers were saying, how can we make this relationship better? When you come to us, maybe using a standard pattern, right? And making it in a, in a way that we can all contribute to the project together. And I think that's the power um, of design systems. That's something that happened to Stack Overflow when we worked on Stacks. It was like, it empowered the engineers to also contribute to the design conversations 
they could submit, you know, issues like, Hey, we, we need some way to like, we basically need a, a consistent way to like talk about cards, card elements, right? What, do, what, do, what are cards? How do they exist in our system? Um, how do they behave? All of that stuff. Um, so Matt, back to your, your point, I think we're getting a little bit lost. Uh, some of these systems are getting a little lost and like, well, what's our, what's our goal? Is it to create like an open source? Like you said, is our job as like the designers and the engineers on like Microsoft docs to create an open source system that everybody can use? No, not at all. It's it's right now it's just to make it so it's a repeatable experience for our customers. And let's just do what makes sense uh, um, from our end. Like uh, we're not as concerned about like exposing it to the world. Whereas like you, you see Salesforce or, or Tailwind UI, right? I think you're really keen on Tailwind, Matt. Like I, I think that Tailwind's an awesome system. I think um, they're doing a lot of great things, but they're kind of, they're building it for a broad community, right? They're making it. Yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not for like one specific product. I, I don't know. And it also could be the fact that, you know, as a typical the engineering practice of uh, nothing else makes sense. Mine will make the most sense, though. Uh, and when folks just kind of, you know, the, the XKCD comment that like we should create a unified standard and like now there's 21 competing standards. Yeah. Uh, so it's to me as, as a non-designer i always felt slightly overwhelmed with choosing like the right design systems for like uh, the sites that i manage or the, the projects that i work on because there's just so much right and everybody claims to be the best and everybody claims to be the most scalable and the universal or the, like, or the a big one in design systems is like the most semantic right right like, like i am naming things properly and it's like naming is so like the most modern though the most clean yeah right, right like, exactly an hour-long conversation about the sizes of typography and what we should name them. It's like, this is a ridiculous conversation to be having right now. I feel like it should just be large, medium, and small. Like, everybody in the world understands that, but apparently they don't, right? Like, how, how semantic do we want to be? And it's like, how many cycles are being wasted on des of designers' time and engineers' time trying to figure out the wet, right ways to name things? And I guarantee Maybe. that there's going to be somebody that's going to look at that and say, you know what? large medium small doesn't make sense i'll create my own that has large somewhat medium medium somewhat small yeah. and small and then yeah, or like, i'm going to convert it you know i'm going to i'm going to actually introduce my own yeah, variables now that are named yeah. something that makes sense to me so so the design system almost becomes a reflection of the team again what matt was saying with like the tech stack man we're creating this mess that we we're getting into with engineering we're also getting into it now with like design systems and i'm not so much on like the actual front end side of it it's more like the actual architecture of it. Um, how do we distribute it even can be like a point of contention, right? Like, yeah. How do we want this integrated into our project? Um, There's always going to be edge cases. Like, is, is performance important? So it's like design versus engineering when it comes to these types of discussions. Um, like how much, how much do we want to integrate animation into the stack? Because it increases our page load by a couple of milliseconds, right? So it's more delightful, but it's worse for accessibility. How do, yeah, how, how do I how do I weigh those two and compare them yeah. as value as value added to a customer? We can't necessarily. I, I guess just overall, I'm I'm sort of surprised that there's not more folks on the design side that are taking some of these design systems that exist that are sort of open source. So I, I think of you know things like Bootstrap, things like even things like you know the the Elastian style guide or a Microsoft style guide yeah. or or some of these things and and saying, hey, we don't have uh, you know bandwidth for fifty people that are experts on usability and and doing research like but it's great that you want to share this like let's take this let's adapt let's adapt it and I feel like that's really where the actual value uh, can can be seen on on some of this so well some of this weird mix of product and design right it's 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 not necessarily valuable to you know build up a button it's where do you put the button what does it say and like i think that's just a, a better use of of time and overall i think will be, probably be a more rewarding experience for somebody uh now there's certainly room for people that want to make frameworks and in, in the developer sense and so i think there's the same thing in the design world there's there's room for people that want to you know uh, sweat the details of you know sub pixel font aliasing and, right, and what's right. the what's the optimal rounded corner radius, right? Um, but you're, but you're I, going I just, back to like, I, I just, the, yeah, the, I just worry that. Practices and like, 
yeah, I just worry that the 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 best practices get you know uh, get get promoted by folks that are doing that work, and then that leads people who uh, try to sort of misapply uh, that. And, and you know, the answer for a design system is not that everyone needs a design system. It's hey, there's a benefit to having established conventions and patterns. You don't need to yourself make those patterns. You can point to these and. Like maybe I would like a designer to say, evaluate these 10 design systems that are out there and pick the one that you think will fit best with the needs of our project. Uh, you know, is our is our project closer to something like Jira? So let's use the Elastian system, or is it closer to something like Twitter? So let's use, you know, Bootstrap or or some of the Twitter UI patterns. Well, it's I interesting love, too, so because if you go back to back in time to 2008 or yet yeah, around the time that the iPhone was released, you know, they did, a, um, Apple did an amazing job of basically setting up one of the initial um, frameworks for a design system. You know, they had their human interface guidelines, the Apple HIG, which focused, it was less on the visual representation and the like actual mechanics behind how it's created and more on the user experience standards that they were going to push through across their system. So I'm talking like where the placement of the buttons are in a um, drill down list, right? Or if you're going through a wizard, having the next button on the right and the back button on the left. And so like documenting all of those like key user insights and why they made it. So they would go back to like, we did studies on XYZ and we found that for accessibility, this was a better option, right? That yeah. is where I think that there are definitely design systems out there doing some of this. And I think Atlassian has some of this in theirs um, where they explain, here is the decision and this is what our product does from an experience perspective. And here is why, here's the insight. And that that is really valuable. And that's where like the wisdom of the crowd comes in and leaning back on for, you know past research. It's not the it's not the pattern kit, right? It's not, like you said, it's not the button design. It's not the... But you know, Courtney, like I think you're right. And the example that you're using is so astute here, like Apple, right? Like they have done a fantastic job at outlining the set of standards for uh, iOS UIs. But even then, you notice that best practices become this kind of a subjective thing where folks will say, you know what? But my app is just that much different. I mean, think of how many menus we have. Like there's the hamburger menu. And then some folks say, you know what, hamburger menu, not my thing. I'm going to put a bar at the bottom. And some folks will say, you know what, I'm going to mimic Windows Phone and have this like pivot. You know, it's even with the standards in place, there's always going to be folks that will say, I'm a special snowflake and my app should be just this much different, even though the best practices are established. Like, yeah, 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 that, that doesn't apply to us. There was a really controversial discussion among like the design community a while back, which was like calling, um, design systems people that do do work on this like scrapbookers like you're just giving people like a bunch of stickers <laughs> you're giving them a bunch of stickers and like frame, like page styles and then you like let them go wild so like you know aunt jenny can make whatever like design she wants and then you know mine would be totally different so there's like this like yeah you're giving them some great stuff to work with but they're going to take all the stickers and stack them on top of each other or use them in ways you didn't intend it's like that's great to have the visuals and, and they all work together in your ideal world. But yeah, what is like the, what is the actual intended guidance, right? And and sometimes you just have to see examples. And, like and for, me, for, for me, I have to just see like, give me examples of this thing in, in the wild. Like you can't just give me, you know, Laura Mipsum versions. I got to see real ones. Um, and, and those are evolving too. Things. Like look at now, you know, we went from the skeuomorphic design to flat design to what now is referred to as like the neo neomorphic, neomorphic, yeah, right. So we're kind of we're like even putting a design system in place that doesn't stay the same for a long time. Yeah, I, I think it just I hate I hate saying this word again, but it depends, right? the The thing with the thing with best practices. That's the name of this that, episode. It depends. <laughs> yeah, the thing with best practices is something becomes a best practice if it is like widely useful across a lot of domains. And that tends to give you things that are like good on average. And that's fine. Uh, but if you have something, some part of your app or some part of your, your product that like you don't want to be average, like you have to not use the best practice. Like if you use the best practice, it's going to look like, you know, everything it's going to, it's, it's going to work the same way. So it, it, same thing on the development side, like, yeah, the best practice is to use, you know, this pattern or this type of database or this this data model but if that's the core of your application then 
you probably don't want to be using a best practice. You know, if the best practice says, you know, uh, use a SQL database and you have, uh, well, we need we need this database to be super high performing because it's a real time analytics platform, then like you're you don't want to use the best practice. And uh, I think I think really what I'd like to highlight on the on the design side is that like I think designers and the design community have been fighting uh, a worthy battle to show that there's more to design and product than just the way something looks. And I think uh, for a while that was certainly uh, th that was certainly like a, the wrong perception, especially that maybe developers had that you just say just slap a coat of paint on us, like make this look pretty, it's done. And I think I think there's a risk that with some of this design system stuff, designers are sort of falling back to that and and de-emphasizing, you know, they, they've made so many hard-fought gains into saying that there's more to it than what the button looks like. It's it's how it interacts with the flow and, and some of that. And I just worry that uh, some of these trends are like, yeah, but we have to build a design system, gets back closer to, uh, you know, the the anti-pattern, the state where, yeah. where things were bad, where it was just like, yeah, uh, the designers are over here. We gave you your, you know, your book of your book of stickers, as you were saying, your your scrapbook, and and here you go. You also have this um, mechanic happening. I, I saw a little bit of stack where it's it's like the team wants to be something to be proud of. Like it's almost like the the system itself becomes a focal point for like effort, right? And oh, so, sure. like, yeah. So like, like it's your, a deliverable. It's a deliverable yeah, your, on its own. Work has been very closely tied usually to like a front end execution of a user experience, but the design system is something that the design team can wholly own in the, you know, Trinity of product develop product development and product engineering, there's product design now, and they have their own thing that they're just like latching onto. So it becomes like this, um, it becomes a really like magnetic thing for the d designers to fixate around. Right. It's like, Oh, we are, we're in this together and we're, collaborating around it and maybe that's yeah. the wrong angle to take it right like we're focused so much on like having something to show our value because other things are harder to show right like it's harder to show yeah your i mean value. i i don't i don't envy you know being a designer at, at all especially you know coming up in the software world because i don't want to minimize that for sure there's uh you know there's the whole mentality of like design needs a seat at the table right and i think there's i think that's oftentimes justified that uh, you know, until recently, it wasn't it wasn't really uh, treated as as you know equal or a valuable part of it. But it's just it's just really hard to uh, to break into that. I think. How do you, and how do you articulate your business value? Sometimes comes in the, in the conversations, right? Like, yeah, you when you go to say like we made this experience more delightful. Well, what are you using for that? Right? Is that you know? There's been things in the past that I've tried to to monitor this, but um, you know. I think that's also why we're seeing like an affinity for people going, and I'm not saying this um, to downplay it, but I think accessibility has become a real focal point, but it's also because it's like easier for us to say, look, we improved our coverage and when it comes to accessibility and it's integrated into our design processes, right? And it's like one more thing we have to tackle and take on as a team, um, a design team, obviously the whole product team owns it, but usually that falls into the designer and engineers realm, right? And we I think together. you're alluding, Courtney, to a very important point where any framework, any system, with it being released into the world, it should abstract out complexity. And including like accessibility is hard, right? It, building an accessible web experience, mobile experience is hard. So a design system or a framework put in place should abstract that out. So whenever I use the, these Lego blocks, I use it not because you know I'm a you know uh, religiously following the mantra of design framework X versus I'm building on something that reduces my need to do complex things so I can focus on the value of the product instead of kind of reinventing the wheel over and over on these uh, on yeah. these items. Yeah, so it saves so, me time. It saves me a lot of time. I know that like having the Fluent library personally mm -hmm. like. It's nice to know that the that central team has already done like their due diligence on all the accessibility standards around like form fields and stuff. So I don't have to worry about those nitpicky details when I go to build an experience. It's more about going out and talking to customers and then designing something that's appropriate for them. And so I told Matt in a, a DM, it was like, he's like, I have a really strong opinion on design systems. I said, I really don't like, I just feel like at the end of the day, whatever helps our team get done faster is great. Uh, I don't want to get lost, like I said, and 
you know, hour long conversations about naming, <laughs> naming something that's for internal use, right? So you must love utility CSS systems, right? Since you don't have to name anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one of the benefits. Uh, and then you take me and everything for me is named style one, style two, button style one. <laughs> the probably translates to me just not knowing CSS well enough. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think it's an, it's a topic definitely to think about more. And I, I almost wonder if some of the framing of like design needs a seat at the table just sets things up for more of an adversarial uh, an adversarial relationship that then leads people to kind of dig in and say, we want to own and have our own deliverables that we can, that we can, uh, you know, we, right. That it's clear, right? Like, like a design system like, is clear. You're, you're immediately setting the stage for this tribalism to happen in this conflict versus like, let's collaborate, how, you know, yeah. how, so, can, how can we fix it on customers? I don't know. I don't know how, you, how, I don't have any good really, guidance on how to kind of navigate that. If, if you're a, like a young designer coming up in, into the field, it's it, it can be hard. You almost have to like sense out whether like you're working with people that are, uh, you know, allies of design or or are going to push back and say, this isn't needed. Like, just make the, make the button colors pretty. And it depends on the culture of the team, too, because in terms of, I, I think what also you mentioned is how your performance is measured, where everybody wants to have some sort of a deliverable, right? So if you're paid a certain amount of money, it'd be odd to say, well, okay, maybe we should just reuse something that somebody else did it, and then I don't have to do that work, and then I can focus on something else, right? Because like, no, 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 you need to show that you're building something. So that's why the, the tendency is to always kind of reinvent the wheel, because like, well, I'm paid for it, so I should be building this instead of coming yeah. And, and it probably depends a lot on the culture because a team that is mature should be able to identify those things and say, "Yeah, it doesn't make to, doesn't make sense to reinvent those things." Versus somebody that is driven primarily by, say, features, they would be always focused on like, "No, no, no, let's build a new thing so I can show that I did things." Yeah, it's almost. I think it's almost like maybe there's just a misunderstanding of what like reinventing the wheel is, and like when it comes to design versus development, because I think it would. At least for me as a developer, uh, it's more clear to see. I think when we're reinventing the wheel, and maybe that's just uh, you know the the maturity of of design when it comes to technology is is still in you know earlier days than development or or, or something. But it, it it feels like yeah. If I said if I if I came to Dan and said hey uh, we need to write our own like database ORM for this project, like uh, he would he would you know look at me like I uh, crazy. you know. Was, yeah, yeah, and 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 of course not. And um, but I don't know. Like, what's what's the what's the analog on the design side? If we said we need to build a design system, like, or we where's the line the, there? No, or, yeah. I mean, I know for a fact. Like I said, I, I came onto into Microsoft, and you know, we're using we're using Bulma. Like, we didn't want to spend time reinventing reinventing the wheel. We yeah. we went out and grabbed something that we thought was going to work for our needs and. Now we're having to retrofit it with the Fluent UI system, right? Like, so it's this weird mishmash. We can't use any of the, the central design team's code. So it just creates this like weird mess. Like mm. some things are used, are relying on, on an old version of Bulma. We can't rebase it because we've gone too far, right? Like um, it just kind of creates chaos. Uh, it would have been nice just to be like, let's just use like. It's like the know. sunk cost fallacy, right? Because Because you've invested so much time and effort into building this, Nobody wants to be the person to say, "Let's just rip it out and replace it with something better." Like, yeah, I don't. So, I don't really know of any web product right now using like in Microsoft using the main Fluent like web library, like just think, linking to the, linking to the CDN and just using it straight up. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't think that's happening. Whereas, like, I, I, I'm sure there's thousands of projects that are just doing that with Tailwind, right? They're just going out, re reaching into this yeah. framework, and, and it's, it's a little apples and oranges, right? Because one is sort of, you know, it, it's kind of like what's a tool versus a framework, and and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious if you think that some of the some of the usage is uh, sort of a consequence of the organizational structure of it, right? If there's if there's a team that just works on a design system versus yeah. uh, teams that are working on the products, there's some disconnect there. It, it absolutely is. Like there's you, there's times that I, you know, I'm actually actively trying to give feedback back to the central team because they don't understand 
the complexity, the needs that we have um, developing a web app. So a lot of this stuff is kind of generic or it doesn't go as deep as it needs to, or we're, have, we're, we're stumbling upon in the wild, like accessibility needs, left to right reading, right? Right to left, yeah. left to right. Um, theming is a big one, right? So like high contrast, um, like the other day I had to help with uh, input input styles, right? Like the focus styles, we don't have, there's not a clear model set up by the central team. So yeah, there becomes this disconnect between the teams building the things and the ones focused on just, you know, building the best design system ever. Um, yeah, uh, and it's kind of sad in a way because I think a lot of the design community like was pushing for these sort of integrated, integrated teams. And I don't know, some of this design, like having separate design teams and, and teams building systems and just, you know, We'll use the system. It, it feels kind of like we're going backwards into the the like agency world of, of yeah. you know throw it over the wall and you get you get one company that does the development and then you have uh, the, another company that does the design and uh, they don't really talk to each other. They just uh, say here's the design, the app's done, and then go build it. And then you know six weeks later you're like wait a second, what about what about this screen that we didn't we didn't know about? And in a large org. You know that team, that central team, they have to go out and basically do user research and understand the people building the products on their own at their own company to be yeah. able to then go back and you know, so their their thing becomes a product and a project within the bigger company. And so yeah, it just you know we're we're still building bespoke interfaces um, on like our our projects because we have to. Um, that's just kind of where we're at, and and the system isn't there, isn't mature enough to support it. So. Yeah, and I'm curious how that evolves long term. Because the more teams start taking a dependency on it, the more requirements will bubble up that are going to be unique. Or that you know, you're talking about retrofitting and having to do that. But the more kind of this is the dilemma because we, when we you're can't wait, we can't wait on the issue to be answered. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I can't submit an issue and like be like, okay, customer wait. Right. We're too that'll be in our that'll be in our, our 2021 release. We'll be sure to address right. that for you. <laughs> exactly. And, and this is the, the scenario where you have, you know, when you're a framework and you're saying, oh, only one team or two teams, three teams use us, that's scalable. Once, you know, 300 teams start using you and everyone wants their requests and everyone has their special like cases that right. they need to tackle. How do you scale it out? Like you, you have to do things your own way because you and I think like Matt, you're absolutely right. It's like, yeah, it's on our roadmap for 2023. Great, like what, for like two years, you're not gonna be building something because the team you're dependent on is not building it? Yeah, so overall, like I think it's just really a complicated situation. And then like zoom out and think about your, your designer, you just got out of, out of school, you're, you know, you, you're not working at one of these big, you know, fan companies, you're working at, you know, one of the other 90% and Everything on your Twitter, everything on the blogs you're reading, all the conference talks are about, you know, design systems of the future. If you're not doing a design system, like you're wrong. It's unbelievable. It's you're you're wrong. You know, uh, your, your your interfaces will be inconsistent. No one will know how to use them. And uh, I, I just th that's where I just I just think this is kind of in a precarious spot. Yeah, I think, you gotta, I think I think I would, you know, my advice has been when I've talked to younger designers, it's like focus on the thing. I, I think that you need to have a good solid understanding of like utility based frameworks. Like there's utility base, which is great for the engineering team, and it speeds up development life cycles, which solves one of the problems. But then there's also on top of that a scaffolding for visual design, experience design, best practices around like accessibility. That's like a whole different realm to understand and be able to get knowledgeable about so you can that's where your real work is. It's not so much on like the front end, like CSS utility side, right? Like I'd much rather have just like a utility based library that we're pulling from to build all our components um, and then document kind of our components separate. Um, if it does require like a bespoke design or we have different needs than, you know, the original framework was designed for. But I think one of the things that you get into with design systems is some of them are built very opinionated. Um, so they have like pre-baked things you have to start overriding. It's like, well, why didn't we just write our own in the first place? You know. Mm -hmm. so. so Matt, I have the last question for you. The, we talked a lot about kind of the engineering best practices. We talk about design systems. Uh, what's your personal approach to learning new things? 
right? Like when it comes to building the knowledge from scratch, you have no idea how to use something like what, what's your, what are your best practices to tackling that problem? Yeah, and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think building something that you're interested in and then uh, doing your learning sort of just in time when you when you have a problem is what I would recommend because you have the context, you know what specific needs uh, uh, you're trying, you know, you've got a problem and it needs to be solved. Will this tool help me solve solve the problem? And I think if you just do, you know, repeated cycles of that, uh, it, you may not have the most intentional uh, learning and, and maybe you're picking up things here and there that don't always connect, but you're just building up your, your toolbox of, of solutions to problems. So Matt, thank you. thanks so much for coming on the show today. And where can people find you? Uh, where are you the most active and uh, where can they talk with you? Yeah, I mean, if you want to chat or tell me about how I'm completely wrong about design systems and uh, <laughs> I, I'm just a, a mean old developer who hates designers, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, twitter.com slash underscore Swanson, underscore character not typed out. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, and if, if you're a developer and you're wow. interested in, in more of how I'm thinking about uh, building stuff with kind of a boring uh, tool chain with, with Rails and some of the kind of base camp style way of, of uh, development, you can find out more uh, about that at boringrails.com. Boringrails.com. I love, I love the domain. And then your yeah, blog. I was happy to get that one. Um, mdswanson.com, correct? Yeah, that's my, that's my personal site. And uh, if you care about uh, my more philosophical writings on software, uh, that's the place to go. I, I love the moose at the, at the top of the logo. There's a great, there's a post in here somewhere where he figures out how to hack a game that I came up with at our old workplace. I forget, I don't know what it's called. Oh yeah, yeah. It, he it like optimized the... The, the perfect lineup for basically the Indy 500 and it's incredible. And I use it against people all the time now and they don't know it. Oh shit, now they do, but. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's great. So his blog is awesome. I love it. Uh, thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much, Matt, for being here. It was a good chat. Thanks for having me.